Pat, it's good to see you again. Good to see you too, Marlon. How are Kat, you? Oh, I'm so good. I'm so good. Kat's one of my favorite people. Kat is at College Ave Student Loans. What's your, what's your title there? Uh, head of Mid-Atlantic Campus and Event Development. Okay. So you are, we, we work a lot together and Kat is so insightful and Kat knows so much about FAFSA. So Kat, FAFSA, this is the new year. This is the first time, This the first simplified FAFSA. I can't, it's it's so easy to say, but yet I'm like butchering it. So the simplified FAFSA, what, Fa, Kat, when you hear, I almost called you CAFSA. Kat, when you hear simplified FAFSA, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Simplified for families, even though it is delayed. So, you know, we're just Simple. waiting patiently. Simple. It'll be simpler for families. So that's good. okay. So just to, to bring everybody up to speed. So what's going on right now is the FAFSA has not been released. We're recording this in mid-December and December 31st, the federal government says the new FAFSA is going to be coming out on December 31st. So what, what does that mean and who needs to apply or register? What's the right word? Apply? Yes, you have to, I guess I wouldn't say apply. You, you're you completing an application, basically. You want to complete your FAFSA application, and FAFSA stands for the, um, oh, I always say it's the, the free application uh, for federal student aid. Federal student aid. So there's almost two, it should be F-A-F-F-S-A. And so, Kat, explain to us what is happening this year and what's different about previous years. Okay, so there was a, a law that passed that basically um, means that the Department of Education has to revise the FAFSA and make it simpler for families. And this is going to be for the fall of 2024 So uh, and the spring of 2025. So if you have, if there's a student applying for financial aid at a college, for any time after July 1 of 2024, you want any funding for that one year following July 1, 2024, you have to fill out the new version of the FAFSA, which is going to be the simplified one. Um, so um, the good news is it'll be, it is simpler for the families to complete. There'll be fewer questions um, and um, should take families less time to complete it as well. So that's good information. So anybody who wants to get financial aid needs to complete their FAFSA. So if it's a family, if there's a family, and I want to let everyone know, I have a lot of questions that we're going to be talking about. I, I asked uh, on social media for people to share questions. Okay. Maybe about like 20 of these. We'll, we'll get to some of these. But um, I want your questions. Uh, I have a question. Should everybody complete their FAFSA if it's a family that says, listen, we have money put away. We're not really concerned about paying. Uh, is it advantageous for them to submit their FAFSA? Everyone should submit a FAFSA um, because you never really know what you'll qualify for unless you try. So it could be it could be that if you fill it out, you will qualify for some free money, which would be like through grants or scholarships. Yeah. Um, but you also could qualify for federal work study, which is um, really a work program where you would get funding for working a few hours on campus per week. 
And then the last type of financial aid you're looking for through the FAFSA are loans, which would be like the student loans. And those are federal student loans I'm talking about that really would be relatively lower fixed interest rate and uh, a small fee that you pay, but it's it's a good it's a good loan to take. So it basically opens the door for any or all of those items. So even if you think you won't qualify, at minimum, you'd qualify for the student loans, um, which, you know, it varies how much you get per year. But as a freshman, let's say you get you can get up to fifty five hundred dollars through that student loan program. And then um, as a sophomore, it goes up to sixty five hundred. And as a junior and a senior, it's seventy five hundred per year for each of those two years. So, I mean, at least it's getting you access to a student loan. Um, but ideally, you would hopefully qualify for some free money. That would be better. So if you have college paid for or if you're, you know, if, if you, you think you do, but you might need a loan, a federal loan. So it doesn't matter what your income is. If you complete your FAFSA, then you will most likely be eligible for a federal loan. But these and, and let's just be clear. There's subsidized loans where the government subsidizes the interest while you are in school. So subsidized are the loans that you would prefer. You know, any lender is going to say, take your subsidized loans before you take an unsubsidized loan. Yes. Right? Uh-huh. Unsubsidized loans are sometimes we'll say unfortunate. That's how I remember because <laughs> it's unfortunate that you accumulate the interest from the moment it hits your account. So it's really important that people understand the difference between subsidized and unsubsidized. If you have, if your if your income doesn't put you in a category where you're going to get any free money, is there the possibility of getting, of having access to subsidized loans? You could potentially get subsidized loans, um, even if you don't get like grants or scholarships. Um, but at at the very minimum, you would qualify for this those dollar amounts that I mentioned, fifty five hundred for freshmen. Um, through completely through the unsubsidized loan program for that year. So at least you would qualify for something. Um, and at, like I said, worst case scenario, you qualify for just the unsubsidized loan and the interest is accruing during school. My advice would be to for the family to take the loan because it's if it is a um, first of all, it gives the student a little bit of skin in the game in terms of working towards their higher education, you know, their degree. Um, but it's also relatively low cost overall, and um, it's a good loan to take, I guess. That's that's sort of, I mean, no one likes loans, but right. it's a good loan to take. And you can pay the interest while you're in school, and that way no interest is accruing. If you're paying that interest during school, it, it actually um, is the best way to go with the unsubsidized loan. So if you don't know if you're going to need a loan or maybe you have money put away and it it's going to be a little more expensive each year. It's just an option so you have access to this. And by completing and submitting your FAFSA, you then are eligible. But then you also are, hopefully, you'll be eligible for some free money in the form of grants and scholarships. Mm-hmm. Again, you've got the work study where they give you an opportunity to earn money. I always find it really funny that it's like you you get a chance to work. And, um, and we're going to give you money if you work, but that money's not guaranteed unless you do the work, but on certain yeah. campuses, there will be jobs that are classified as work study. So if you're looking for a job, a part-time job, and you don't qualify for work study, some of those jobs you might not have access to. Right. So yeah. it's important to at least see, are you going to have access to those work study jobs? 
And then there's those subsidized or unsubsidized loans that you can have access to. So those are some of the reasons that it's it's beneficial. And I know also sometimes the schools will offer some type of scholarships within a department or within the school, and they'll look at FAFSA to see if they're need-based or if they if, if you can be considered for some of those. Is that correct? Right. Sometimes so sometimes those academic-based scholarships do require you to fill out the FAFSA only because the school is trying to figure out who to give them to, and sometimes they want to see that data before they actually award even those talent-based or um, merit-based. You can consider them either merit-based, talent-based, or academic-based. Those are scholarships, right. basically. So sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes they do. the schools might want the FAFSA in order to look at the students' qualifications as well. Gotcha. So what's... So what's tricky about this year's FAFSA is in previous years, this comes out in October. You have access to submit your FAFSA in October. But this year, because of the simplification, which is the first time in how many years that they've made a change? Is it like 20 or 30? or? Um, well, never really. I mean, they've never... <laughs> Thank you for putting that in perspective, right? Yeah, I mean, the FAFSA kind of has been around for oh, about 30 years, basically, and it's been tweaked over time, but to tweak it, it actually does take an act of Congress, It's no pun intended, because it's right. um, Congress actually has dictated that this needs to happen. So um, without Congress, because it's a federal form, without Congress, there really was never a requirement to do something quite so um, immense. And so they had to, they basically, Congress says, okay, you've got a Department of Education, you have to revise this form in a, simple, to a, in a simplified way and here are the parameters to build this new form. Um, and so that's all that the Department of Education can do. They, they are now within the parameters of this new law that was passed and they have to have a, um, have it ready by December 31st of 2023. So we're, um, this is really built by Congress saying you have to do this. And we really never had this before. So. Right. so there's a lot of unknowns that are happening right now. And for students who are applying and families who are trying to figure out, can I attend a certain school? Uh, we know that there's been a lot of early action, whether it's early decision, early action. And for families, who are waiting, uh, they might not know the type of financial aid they're going to get until, when would you say, Kat? Um, well, the schools will not receive, so, okay, the families are going to fill out the FAFSA starting whenever it gets released, which will be no later than December 31st at 11.59 p.m. Eastern time. Um, so that's the, you know, like sometime between now and then it's got to come out and be available. So the family, let's say that worst case scenario comes out that night or something. Uh, the family fills it out. The school doesn't actually get, isn't actually going to be sent that data from the Department of Education until the end of January. Wait, uh -huh. so let me just get this clear. So someone's going to complete their FAFSA and then it's going to just sit in a, in a, you know, in a, a mailbox or wherever it is, right? And then, but if somebody fills it out first, are they going to, are the schools going to 
go through the financial aid documentation in the order that they were submitted? Um, they, yes, they probably, yes, they will. But, um, I guess my advice here is to say that the entire month of January, the school won't have any of the information that the families right. file. So there is no urgency for the family to even file this on December 31st or January 1st or January 2nd or whatever, because there, is, there will be a month delay. It's already been stated to, um, the um the colleges that the colleges will not receive the data until the end of January, which means that all of January there is no rush really because the families will complete the FAFSA, but the schools will not have that data. So I jump in here because I I wanted to ask you if so I have a senior in college a senior in high school, mm -hmm. and you know my thought is okay for this FAFSA we got to get this done you know, really like the first week of January because yeah. we want to make sure that they these schools get this information uh, as soon as they can. But if I submit the FAFSA January 5th versus January 22nd, do you think that would have much of an impact? Like, are the schools going to look at people who submitted January 1st first? Like, or is it just a big bucket, you think? Like, they just pour it. I know they're not like physically pouring it on their their, t their desks. But I mean, that sense of urge urgency, I think there are a lot of families that feel that, but you're saying there isn't. But I just want to understand how that works. Yeah. I mean, if I if I were you in your shoes, you know, you have someone in high school um, and for anyone listening here, the earlier you get it done, it's off your plate. So, you know, if I were you, I would go ahead and just get it done, get it off your plate. It's all based on 2020. Uh, 20, um, right. 2022 tax data so the tax data is done anyway it's it's based right. on those taxes so there is no reason for you to wait um you know how sometimes like if new technology comes out you might say to yourself hmm i might wait until all the bugs are worked out <laughs> right I actually like buy that uh, that that apple watch that that version or the the next big right. thing um I think it's probably going to be fine that the FAFSA releases and it's, you know, maybe it'll all work great, but I wouldn't necessarily need to be the first person to fill it out um, because what if there are some snafus and they've got to iron those out? I right. mean, I would say for, you know, I think that at the end of January, when the um, data is released to the schools, that it, it is going to come in in one big lump sum. I don't think it's necessarily going to be that, okay, if you filed it on January 1st, you have a prep, you know, preferential right. treatment necessarily. Um, I do think what is important, though, is did you file your admissions application by the deadline that the school wanted? Because that that really is something you can control because you're you're applying eagerly to a school versus, you know, at the very last minute applying to a school. So I guess I would say focus on your admissions deadlines, get in those admissions applications if you haven't, you know, whenever they are, depending upon what you're looking at. Right. And then the financial aid, I personally would just get it off my plate, uh, especially over the holidays. Um, get it off your plate, file it. It's based on 2022 data. 
Um, your asset data is based on whatever day you file it. So if that matters to you in terms of January, you know, if you're looking to, you know, if that matters in terms, will your assets be changing much in January? I don't know, but, um, technically the assets will be as of the day you file that FAFSA. So you could make that determination based on, you know, are you about to buy a house and you're putting a down payment on a house? And obviously that's a large chunk of money you want to, you know, make sure it gets to where it needs to go yeah. towards your mortgage. But, yeah. um. You know, let's. I want to get into some of those more specific questions about what we should do at you know different dates and just being mindful of of assets and things of that nature. But I wanted to touch on the just some of the changes, and I know you've done a lot of presentations on this. So, in terms of what's different from previous years, because we have some people who are who are filling out their completing their FAFSA, and they have been doing this for two years already. And they're used to it being a certain way and used to getting a certain amount of aid, whether they have multiple students in school or they're used to getting a Pell grant. So just tell us some of the bullet points of some of the the most important changes that people are talking about. Sure. So the biggest one is that the FAFSA will, excuse me, will ask you it well basically the calculation does not include the number in college anymore so if you have two or three or four people in college at the same time um in the past it, it would calculate your need based on using you know, kind of think of it like this you know if the calculation was that the family can contribute you know ten thousand dollars at the bottom line it would divide by two if you had two in college. And so therefore, student A's calculation would be that you could contribute $5,000 towards that school. And then, you know, it, it would divide the $10,000 by the two in college. And then it would look like you were needing more money, of course. Now, what will happen is the formula does not, will not take into account the two in college. So in my example there, your family, um, it'll it'll show that your family can contribute the $10,000. And so for those families who have um, multiple students in college, just know that that could um, certainly be a big eye-opener for this year in terms of how the, the school is calculating the need. And um, again, this is all done by, by statute. So it's not it's not under the school's control. The formula is actually driven by Congress and then subsequently the Department of Education. So it's not the school's fault, you know, that this is happening. This is kind of all driven by that. So, um, but the good news is that um, if your family contribution isn't really that high, then dividing by two, you know, not dividing by two at the end um, won't affect you as much, but still, it is a big change for people who, um, you know, if your family contribution doesn't really matter what it is, it's the fact that they're not dividing by two anymore if you have two in college or three anymore if you have three in college is a kind of a big deal um, financially. So I, I think that one is the biggest financial change. Yeah. Um, but I can tell you that there are some things in the um, formula that are actually helping the families. So it's kind of like raising the boat up a little bit. 
while that other one is pulling the boat down. So I, it's not like an all or nothing thing. There's some good stuff that's happening in there too, which will hopefully help the calculations. So can you share a couple of those good things? Yeah. So, um, this one is more, um, geared towards sort of the family's living expenses. So within the formula, um, before, like the way that the formula works, it kind of looks at your income. It looks at your assets. It looks at your household size and it's squishing all that stuff together. And then it, you know, puts out a number basically at the bottom line. Um, but before a family contribution can be carved out, if you will, it does look at general living expenses. Like, you know, you and I have to keep our lights on. We have to feed a certain number of people in the household and we have to eat and sleep and, you know, um, all those things. Those are living expenses. And so those are protected within the formula so that, you know, it doesn't just automatically say, oh, you make, you know, $75,000, therefore you can afford, you know, X number of dollars. It doesn't work that way. It basically protects a piece of your um, of your income for things like, you know, federal taxes and those living expenses I mentioned, like eating, sleeping, keeping lights on and those things. So they those allowances in the formula for living expenses are actually going to go up. Right. this year so that'll that'll help um so that that's one that will will assist um the another thing that will help i too for those folks who are listening if they are applying to um a school that uses the css profile uh the css profile institutions of which there are about about 300 or just shy of that um, 300 colleges and universities in the country that use that extra form to calculate need. Um, those tend to be, you know, some of the, some a lot of private institutions, but there are a few state schools as well, like um, that that use that form to figure out aid. Um, those schools tend to be, from what I'm hearing anecdotally, they are still going to count the number in college this year. So um, that will help you at those schools that are that are requiring the CSS profile, even though you have to do an extra application, the good news is their application at the college board administers it. And it was available October 1st and it is available early. So first of all, if you're filing that, the school already has that data so they could at least put something out to you to let you know what your aid will be. Um, and in addition to that, that number in college thing is really gonna, um, They'll be more generous, I think, there with the number in college than those schools that only use the FAFSA to review your your need this year. When it comes to getting aid, uh, there's the federal aid, but then when you submit that FAFSA, uh, does it vary based on each campus, how much they'll award? Because I know you've worked at, at a bunch of campuses, and when when you look at when those FAFSAs come in, um, schools can have certain funds that aren't the same as the federal government. So, oh. you know, is there any way to project, you know, what a school will give you or to understand when you're when you're calculating this? Um, there is. Um, you basically you can use um every school that that um participates in the federal 
aid program has to have an, uh, what's called a net price calculator on their website. So you'll either find it in the, the financial aid section of the website or the admissions section or both. It'll always be in the financial aid section, I'm pretty pretty much. Um, if you just Google, you know, net price calculator and then whatever college, it'll come up. And I would recommend recommend starting there to at least try to figure out what you might qualify for at that particular school. Um, the amount of aid that you get from one school versus the next will not be the same. So, and and here's why. Basically, because they have their own institutional money that they're able to spend. So um, at a college that's, you know, let's say a community college, they tend to only really mainly have federal and state aid that are that's available. They don't necessarily have like a big bank of endowment endowed funds that they're also spending on students. They're not that's they're not really structured that way. Typically, um, they may have a little bit here and there, but they aren't going to have um, a lot of that for the student. And and you know, the cost is lower there as well, so that you don't necessarily need as much right. either. When you look at like a four-year state school, let's say, um, so again, the, you know, the community college is at a state state level. The, the four-year public school, you know, like your state school in your own individual state, right. um, they tend to be a little lower cost too, but they also may not have just this, you know, a ton of endowed funds that they're spending. They may have some for sure, more than a community college would have, but they won't have, um, it's not going to be an endless pool of funds. Um, whereas if you look at the four-year uh, private schools, which would be higher sticker price, but they tend to have the most in um, endowed funds to spend, which are really like institutional funds that they're spending. So um, it really just depends on the college and university and what they have. You know, if you're looking at a Harvard, Harvard is flush with endowed funds. Um, and, and there are some private institutions that, that aren't as flush, you know, with right. the, I'd say Harvard probably is obviously one of the, right. the most flush. <laughs> right. So when you, when you're, going through this process and you complete the FAFSA at the end of December, at the, it, in January, you complete your FAFSA in January, okay. the school then reviews it and they're going to have thousands of these applications to review. They're going to review it in February and yeah. probably even through March, I would imagine. Do you think that's, that's possible? Yep. Mm -hmm. So, and they review it and then what they do is they calculate based on the information you provided what type of funds are available and that can vary from campus to campus. So really a student who gets in and gets their acceptance, let's say the students who already applied and did the early action or, or early decision, they, they're not going to know until maybe, and I'm, I, w I don't want to misspeak here, but like they might not know till April uh, what they're getting or late March. Is that accurate? You think? Uh, if they applied early decision or early action, they are probably going to be on the early part of the list for the schools to, you know, know how I, I mentioned um, that the FAFSA data isn't going to be pushed out to the schools until the end of January. Right. Um, I think if I were at a school, as I used to be, what I would do is I would first 
pull the files of the the data from those students who they know are going to be admitted for early decision or early action and get those out the door to to those families before like someone who's applying regular decision. Right. Uh, first of all, the regular decision students tend to have a deadline for admissions uh, or for financial aid around February 1st or February 15th anyway. So their deadline hasn't even hit yet. So they're probably going to they're going to probably process all the early decision and early action students first, my guess is, yeah. um, and get you those financial aid awards out um, if you are one of those people. Yeah. Um, my guess is they're going to they're going to want to send you that first because you were that initial group. And then the regular decision folks will will likely hear. And I do think and I anecdotally, again, um, just having spoken with many colleagues over the course of the last six to eight months what you know what are you going to be doing um some of them already know that it's going to be march and definitely march for uh financial aid awards for regular decision some will push it to potentially april um if they have to so i would just you know say to families it, you have to be kind of patient a little bit because um the amount the immense amount of work that is being pushed to the financial aid office um they've got to get through it somehow and they have lost they're going to lose a lot of time being able to do that what they normally would have had right. so they'll they'll get to it and in worst case scenario if they have to they'll push their enrollment deadline out if they need to right that may could is typically may 1st sometimes it will be a different yeah. date but may 1st is that that enrollment date. So, mm -hmm. so everything's gonna be a little different this year and everyone has to be patient, but just this year though, I mean, the right. next year it should go back to its normal calendar where it's right. October 1st is, is when it's available. Yeah. But it's so hard because I know there are so many students who don't know what their financial future is going to be. And there are, are a lot of students who are in limbo because if they don't get the right amount of financial aid or if they're in a situation where they get their aid from one school and they don't have it from another school, it's it's harder to negotiate and to let financial aid offices know what's going on when, first of all, they're not available because they're so busy. And second of all, uh, you don't have that information. So I think this year is going to be a little, I mean, it's going to be a little tricky on all sides. Would you agree? Yeah, that's that's a good point because you... You know, if you're looking at, let's say you have five or eight schools you're looking at and you get a financial aid award from one of them on someone, you know, a school's early, they send it, you've got it February 10th, you know, you've got it. Um, but then the other seven are pushing to March. It makes it very difficult for the family to compare. Um, but I think, um, you know, it's one thing if they're early decision, because if you apply early decision to a school, you're pretty adamant that you want to go to that school. So you've only really got one choice that you're looking at. Um, but for everyone else who hasn't narrowed it down to that, you know, I really want to go to that one. Um, you know, it's a little challenging because you, you will have to have um, you're going to have a little bit of crunch time where you normally would have had at yeah. least an extra month to to um, make your considerations right or do a financial aid appeal you know there's a lot of those yeah. things that are built into the system where if you don't get the funds and your situation has changed or you just want to you know explain that there there aren't as many options 
given the timeline. So mm-hmm. you know, it'll be interesting, and I'm going to keep people posted on this because it's you know it's 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 a very it's 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 already a difficult situation for so many families, but I know the financial piece can really be one of the most determining important determining factors. So you know what you might want to because you mentioned that with appeals, I guess if I um, I was just thinking it might be good for families to if you already know that like your income in 2022 is not reflective of what your income is now. Um, and 2022 is what's going to be used in the, you know, it's pulling IRS data from 2022 taxes. So if you already know that your story has changed, you should probably go ahead and let the school know that now via whatever their appeal process is. Maybe, you know, you either write a letter or an email, you know, you can look at their website to see what their process is. Um, if it is a CSS profile school that needed that form, you do have the ability to to write up to 2,000 characters of information under the special circumstances section there on that form. So I would say, like I said, if you before you even get a financial aid award, maybe this year is a good year for you to just get that information to the school ahead of time so that they have it and then... You're not reacting. You're being proactive yeah. about telling the story, I guess. So let's get into some questions. So along those lines, if somebody has a very different financial situation in 2023 versus 2022, could they file their taxes you know, early um, and then complete their FAFSA and use the 2023 tax return? Um, they could, but you know, most W twos aren't available to the end of January. Seems, I mean, if, if it's your, if it's if you own your own business and you don't, you're not waiting to receive a W two from someone, then you might be able to work on it sooner. But for those of us who kind of live in the W two world, you know, there historically, I you know don't I don't think I've ever received my W two early, like right. January second. <laughs> right. So, um, I. If they have it, yeah, they could certainly file their taxes and turn that in. Um, that would be great. In fact, that would be better for the school because then there's more concrete yeah. information that's filed. And you're like, okay, this is how 2023 was. I changed jobs. I have less disposable income that I can put towards education. So, yeah, by all means, if they can do it, that would be great. Um, I don't know if all families would have that ability before the end of January, but if they do, sure. I was thinking, in, even in terms of that financial aid appeal, if you want to be proactive, you could send that that letter. But it would probably be even more powerful if you had that financial appeal and you were able to do it. You know, this is tricky because I'm like trying to. This, these are the questions that a lot of a lot of families have to struggle with because it's it's going to be really helpful. So maybe what you do is you 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 send that letter ahead of time, and then you send a follow up in March or whenever you file your tax return and you could say this is the second part of the appeal and you know here's the data. What do you think of that idea? Um well okay so most of the time the schools that want to um if they're going to entertain an appeal they want some sort of documentation. So um at minimum with an initial appeal you'll want to send in like if it was a change of income because that's sort of the most common one yeah. um then you could send in like the, your most recent pay stub at the end of december for example that would show it you don't have your w2 yet but you at least have your most recent 
your last pay stub of the year, which would tell how much income you've gotten right. for the year. Um, that would at least allow them to physically have some documentation with the appeal. Um, if you were to do what you suggested there, potentially, um, if you think about it, like they have a lot of stuff coming in their queue. Yeah. So if you're now sending two things into the queue, that slows them down a little bit because now they're processing yours in January, but then they're going to have to process again in a queue in March. And if everyone did that, there would be two things for one family coming in all the time. And that actually is not as ideal in terms of the workflow. Um, and so the most that you can send with documentation at once would be better for you and them. Okay. Well, that's good. I'm going to do a yeah. tip on that on just the appeal. And I think that these conversations are so helpful because the the normal timeline where I offer tips and advice, it's really being shifted this year. Um, let me just ask you this question. If somebody is a, a self-employed and they have money set aside for taxes in, in a business account, as opposed to their own personal account, um, and they ask about you know the money that you currently have, but that money's for taxes, does someone need to include that money in a business account if it's allocated for taxes? Um, you mean like if they pay quarterly on their taxes or something? Yeah, yeah, because there's or some people will pay you know larger sums and yeah. you know, spread it out based on right. So in in January they might have a large amount of their tax money that's going to be intended for April in a business account. So it would be a misrepresentation of what cash is on hand because it's really cash that's already been allocated, but right. it's also in a business account. Okay. So I guess my advice on that would be from my experience is to, um, so the, the other thing about the new FAFSA is that everyone now, um, regardless of how many employees you have, if you have a business, you now have to report your net worth for your business, um, even if you're like an employee of one. So if you're if you're self-employed, it's just you. You have your own business, and you're or have what you're describing there, where you're saving money towards your taxes um, at the end of the year. Um, I just want to make it clear that everyone who has a business now is going to have to put their net worth on the FAFSA. So it before, if you were a small business owner and you only had like one or two employees, you didn't have to put your net worth down, and now you will. How does one know their net worth in that situation? Um, so the net worth is going to be anything like if you have buildings or assets, like if you have goods that you sell, um, it would be, you know, you, if you had like um, an, an industrial building, but also like if you own a building that that you could sell, not that, you, not that your purpose here is for you to sell your business so that you can afford college. That's not really what it's about. It's really more about like your general um overall asset level and so you know someone who has their own business some some of those folks will have uh, well i'll give you an example like my parents used to own a store they owned the they owned the building that the store was in sometimes people may not own the building that the store is in they might rent from someone so therefore that is not an asset that they own they own, but in like my parents' situation, they owned that building. So therefore, they would have had to put that building down. And not to mention, but all the goods that they were selling within, 
that right. store would have been considered an asset. And to your original question about a business account, um, if you have cash on hand, that also goes towards your net worth for businesses. So you, you know, you would have to count technically, you would have to count your cash as an asset. But here's the thing. You also will need to put include because they're asking for business net worth. And what does net worth mean? That means that you have a value and then you have liabilities against it. So what are your liabilities? Your liabilities are, well, I own this building, but I owe, you know, $500,000 on it or something. Um, that's a liability. So therefore, value minus a liability equals the equity. So it's value minus debt. So even if you're saving money towards your taxes and you know that what those taxes will be, then in that sense, I would probably count that as a liability when you're figuring out what the quote unquote net worth is, because that money is earmarked for the federal government. Right, right. So, so you know, these are, and I know we're kind of getting into the minutia and, and you know, this is something that okay. with a lot of self-employed people nowadays. So, I mean, this, right. I think a significant number of people who, who can relate to this. And so then there's also assets in terms of just passive revenue or investments that people have. But if someone has a question when they're filling this out and they don't have UCAT, uh, <laughs> is there a hotline? Like, how does someone get all this information, especially given there's all these people filling out all this information at the same time? Where do we get this information? Um, Good question. I mean, you know, first of all, the FAFSA has instructions that are... Um, supposedly relatively clear. I mean, over time, I have read the FAFSA instructions. I've been in the business a really long time, so I've right. read them over and over again any number of years. Um, and they are relatively clear to figure out what to do. Um, we just went in the weeds there a little bit about, hey, I'm saving these for my business taxes that I needed to, you know, you know, no, the government hasn't been taking it all year round, so I've got to hang on to it and pay them after the end of this year. Um, that might, it, it's not going to get into that much detail, but it will talk about like the debt level on your, on your business and things like that. Um, but you're only going to get to a certain point by way of the instructions. So to answer your question, you either make an educated decision by interpreting the instructions just as if I'm sitting down reading the instructions. Right. Um, or you contact the financial aid office at one of the schools you're looking to apply to and ask them the question, and they will give you the answer. Um, the financial aid staff at the offices are not there. They know how to do this stuff, too. Right. So they're, they're going to be able to give you the answer. So that's free help you can get. Um, and then lastly, you could um, also, there are some, you know, places where, um, like, you might be able to tap into listening to some recordings online if they've gone into the weeds about some of these things. Okay. You know, I've done webinars on live, you know, uh, Facebook oh. Live sometimes. So there, there's yeah. there's ways to get to these things, but it's it's better if you can ask a physical person if it really yeah. is something complicated. Sound would be really cool. Maybe through like um, through NASFA or one of you know. It'd be cool if they did. I don't know if they're going to do any live Q and As or 
Um, the, the Department of Education, well, really, they call it FSA, which is Federal Student Aid. So you'll, yeah. sometimes you'll see FSA, really. Um, FSA, they will do, they have done some live webinars for uh, where families, I think, could call in uh, yeah. or could listen in, if you will, and submit questions. I don't know how often they're doing those, but they have certainly done some since, I think, August, just to yeah. see you know, the new application prototype and all that stuff. Um, but um, a lot of times, if I were you, I would look locally to this because um, you might actually find that there are some financial aid nights in your hometown yeah. that are put on by local colleges that are in your area. And if you can kind of tap into that, you would actually be able to have a better shot at getting it like a real person you know, not like just an online chat, but you might be able to talk like we are talking right now. And so look locally to your high school and see if your high school can direct you to towards like a financial aid night or a webinar night where you're able to ask some live questions. I think that would be really helpful. It would be. I am, you know, I'm feeling, I know there's going to be a lot of questions and I know there are not a lot of experts who have answers to these questions. So I have some questions. I want to do a rapid fire. We'll do like super, super quick, just like 10 minute Q&A because I ask people to ask me questions mm -hmm. or to send in questions that I can ask you. Are you up for this? We'll do like a speed round? Sure. All right. Let's just do this. Okay. <laughs> let's see. What I'm, oh, I like the music in the background. Ah. It sounded like, it sounded like I said speed round. It sounded like you had, I think it sounded like an incoming message, but like, like it was a fun, it was perfect timing. Okay. The speed <laughs> round starts now. If my parents don't want the other person to see their tax returns, will it affect my aid? I, can I answer this? They need to see your parents' tax returns, right? We, the parent tax returns, well, the parent tax data has to go on the FAFSA, so. Right. This is, you know, culturally, sometimes parents can be very private with their financial status, and they don't want the kids to see this, right? Right. So, but in order to get financial aid, the people reviewing your finances need to see this documentation. Yeah, I mean, the student should maybe the student should do it their part first, and then the, have the parent do theirs last, and then submit it. But then the student doesn't need to look at. Okay, that's a good. Comment. And then they could. I mean, they might log back in, of course, but at least they've already. Or they're gonna log back in. They log back in and go, "What did mom and dad make?" No, <laughs> we could trust it. You don't even want to laugh about that. <laughs> We don't even need to No, you have to trust that you're not going to do that. You got to trust your parents. Yeah. But I, I've seen it where parents, especially with a lot of first generation families, they're very worried about people seeing these sensitive documents and uh, and using it in some you know, negative way or using mm -hmm. it against them. What do you have to say about that? Uh, well, keep in mind that like if it's a, a divorce separated situation, those um, like a the other biological parent who's not on the FAFSA is not going to see it because they're not able to get in. That, that never the two shall meet really on that one. Um, so in case anyone's worried about that, like a divorce or separated situation where that parent is not even part of this FAFSA, um, you know, they would not be able to get in. So a kid fills out two, two different versions or... What are you saying oh. exactly? Oh, I'm sorry. So, like, if a student is in a situation where the parents are divorced or separated, um, and therefore only only one parent is going on the FAFSA, not both of them, 
unless they still live in the same house, which does happen sometimes. Um, but let's assume that these the two biological parents do not live together in the same at the same address. Um, you're only going to have one parent going on the FAFSA with the student, or if there's a new if there's a step parent now, now that step parent will go on there. But that second that other biological parent is not on this FAFSA. Why is that? So only a student only picks one biological parent. Yeah, yeah. And then if that so you're living with, um, no, it has to be that. Nope, that's changing. So it has to be um, whoever makes more money, whoever has more income. But so that other per, so the other people, the other person, you know, they're not going to see, they're not going to see this. Okay, that's yeah, just. I just yeah. want to make sure people know that, like in a divorced or separated situation, that other biological parent. W they wouldn't be coming in on the FAFSA anyway. So I just don't want people thinking that, like, gosh, I don't want the, uh, my my ex-wife or husband to see any of this data. They won't because they're not filing. They're not on this FAFSA with the student. Only, right. you know what I mean? So I don't want to get too into the, the weeds, but like a yeah. student who has separated parents with two different incomes, they're going to have the parent who makes more money. They're going to list that parent but then does the money that the other parent makes, is that considered, is that factored in in any any degree? Um, if no, unless it's a CSS profile school where they need that, they want to count that other person. Unless you're remarried, like whoever's on the FAFSA, if, there's, if, they're, re if they're remarried and there's a step parent, they have to put their stuff down. Right. But if they're getting money for child support or, or other areas, is that considered in as part of it? Yes. If you're getting child support, um, if you receive child support, it used to count as income. Um, but on the new FAFSA, it's going to count as an asset. So you would put it in the asset section. But also keep in mind that this is 2022 income that will automatically like be going on the FAFSA. So if you did get divorced or separated between 2022 tax year and now, um, or the day that you're filing the FAFSA, you will have to um, kind of work through that with the financial aid office to make sure that you're, they're only take you know, they're taking into account the, um, what they if you know if you're if you're separated or divorced and you haven't got neither of you have gotten remarried or anything like that you know you're not going to want to count two parents from 2022 on that tax return right so that's another tricky uh all i feel i feel like all we're doing is creating more problems today like the whole idea of this conversation is i wanted to simplify make it easy <laughs> i know i know but there are those situations and here's the deal you're in one of those situations you just contact the school and say Here's what's going on. We, but but people don't always know that. So if you're separated or divorced and your tax returns don't reflect that, then you just need to understand what you need to submit, or if you need to submit another letter that that clarifies what's going on in terms of an appeal. So you know this stuff is important, and uh, I don't think people recognize those nuances, and they come up when you're completing this. And uh, you know if you don't have the answer, reach out to those. Reach out. This is our it's speed round. Um... Still... It's got the 80-20 rule, you know what I mean? Like there's a lot of there's a lot of married families out there who will get through the FAFSA. The new FAFSA will be simpler or whatnot. But I do think that with divorce separated families, sometimes that is it's a little bit more complicated in general to fill it out, but it's not it's it's gonna work. It's gonna be okay. Yeah. Um just follow the instructions that are given on the FAFSA. And if you do have questions, you can always rely on 
Um, the financial aid offices rely on the high school counselors also to point you in the right direction in case there are some local experts in your neighborhoods and your cities and towns um, who they know are about to have a workshop. And maybe you could you could be on a webinar or something where you're asking your individual questions. Um, you can also pay for services where you're getting a consultant to help you kind of advise you and you're paying them a little bit of a fee. Um, you know, I would just be careful with that. Like if you don't have the means to do that, um, try to go with the free options first yeah. before you plunk down, you know, $500 or $1,000 for some advice that you might have been able to get for free if you kind of went where I told you to start, which is really ask your high school counselor or call the financial aid office because they can at least guide you maybe into the free world first instead of yeah. having to pay for something. Okay. We got some more questions. Let's do our speed round. I know the speed round, our first question took 10 minutes. I know. We didn't. We just fine. I, well, <laughs> no, it's the, uh, but because I, I like sent us down a rabbit hole. <laughs> so I will not do that. Okay. We'll just, all right. Speed round. Ding, ding, ding. Okay. Um, just want to clarify my question. Does every individual who plans to graduate in 2024 have a requirement to enroll in the free application for federal student aid? for academic year 24-25? No. No. You're not right. required to do it unless you want to apply for financial aid. Right. You apply for financial aid every year if you want to be eligible for financial aid. And this is different than merit aid because some merit aid doesn't take into consideration any of your finances. So if you received a letter saying, welcome to the school, we're going to give you this particular scholarship, that happens. Merit can be different than need-based aid, which happens most frequently in the financial aid office. Yeah, so, sometimes you won't need to fill out a FAFSA just to, to get merit aid sometimes. Wonderful. Okay. Saw the sibling discount has been discontinued, so EFC will go up, and EFC is going to become what? What's the new acronym? SAI, which is called the Student Aid Index. Right. So expected family contribution is going to become Student Aid Index, so you need to know about that. We were praying for more aid this year with two going to college. In the next three years, we will have all four kids in college, so greatly concerned. Oh, boy. Okay. Okay. I heard that some schools are taking into account, even though the federal government isn't taking into account through the FAFSA. I know you mentioned this through the CSS. This person should look at a CSS school, looking at some of these private schools as well. But then the FAFSA, if you, if you share this information and then you share in a letter, what's happening, is there the possibility that schools are going to make more funds available? Yes. So if you have, if you have four, that person has four in college at one time. Yeah. Um, and maybe not all this year, but nonetheless, somewhere down the line, um, definitely they should be the, they should definitely go to each of those four colleges and say, or maybe it's the same college, um, and, and tell them about their situation. And then they will likely work with this family to make other accommodations within the formula to um, give them hopefully some more aid, especially if it's a school that has endowed funds. If it's a community college, maybe not so much. But um, if it is a school that has some institutional funding of their own, I, I guarantee you they're going to consider this as a, a, a serious special circumstance there with that many in school at one time. Right. And it's understanding that sometimes the schools that have higher sticker prices that also have endowments 
and have funds available, those might actually end up being the most economical choices, which I yeah, sometimes they're cheaper because yeah. overall they have a lot more to give you. Um, and so yeah. you might end up finding they're the same or less than another institution. It just depends on the school. Right. And that goes even back to earlier applying to these schools and also communicating to your students. This is something I emphasize a lot is you have to have more than one dream school. Do not fall in love with a school and commit to one school before you understand what costs are involved and how much you'll receive in aid. So. Right, because it is not a one-year um, decision. It's a four-year decision, potentially, or five, depending upon your program. Yes, and um, that leads to the next question. Um, um, will this new version of FAFSA change any of the amount of money I got, I got next year? Uh, yes, it could. If your need is now less, because especially that number in college change, um, it certainly could change like the Pell Grant eligibility. I do think that middle and middle income families are going to see a little bit of the pinch on this more so than if, if a family is high, has a lot of need, um, they're still going to have a lot of need in this new world. And so I don't think actually that set of families is going to see any difference. They're going to get a lot of aid regardless. Um, it's those families who unfortunately tends to be like the middle income, middle to upper income, especially if they had more than one in college yeah. where it's, um, it, it might be noticeable where there's, where there was a Pell Grant before, maybe there won't be now, or it'll be smaller. Um, you know, but hopefully overall, um, if there is a significant difference than what you were expecting, you can always talk with the financial aid office and see what else can be done. Um, Great. So. What defines you as Pell eligible? Are there levels of Pell eligibility? Um, so the new world next year with the new FAFSA, um, this is also changing with the Pell Grant. So it's going to, um, the, it will basically look at your income and it will compare it to the USDA's poverty guidelines, and it'll see where you fall within that, um, which is kind of like a universal. If you Google poverty guidelines, um, it, it doesn't mean you're impoverished. It, it, impoverished. It just means that that's, that's what the U.S. Department of Agriculture puts out, and that's sort of a guideline that is used in many, many ways in this country to measure for a certain level of something. So the poverty guidelines are actually what's being used to um, figure out the Pell Grants this year, so uh, for next year. So it'll look at poverty guidelines and it'll look at, a, you know, okay, is your income a certain percentage of the poverty guidelines? And if so, you would qualify for a maximum Pell Grant. And if you didn't qualify for that, they give you a second chance to qualify for Pell. And that looks at your student aid index or your SAI. And it looks to see if you qualify in that realm. And again, without getting too far in the weeds here, if you didn't qualify on that sort of second chance, there's a yeah. third chance that you could qualify for what they're calling as a minimum Pell. And that is also based on the poverty guidelines, but it's um, at a different percentage. So um, your income would be at a different percentage of the poverty guidelines. If you're not Pell eligible, the answer, if, you, if it comes back and you're not, then you can appeal. Uh, you can appeal for other aid. Uh, you can appeal, yes, because like, let's say, for example, well, that's because my 2022 income was inflated here and now I'm making much less. And so they can recalculate your need. 
um, and then see if you qualify for Pell by recalculating your need using um, additional data points for right. your special circumstances. So, Okay. Question, will my previous information transfer or do I have to enter anything again? Um, so I guess that would be for returning students uh, yes. or coming back. So it automatically will put in certain data. I am, I have to tell you, I'm not 100% sure about this with the new FAFSA because yeah. um, they literally redesigned it. So I'm not sure. In year one, you may have to redo, you know, you may have to enter certain demographics all over again. I'm not 100% sure. But you wouldn't on your second year. I know that because they. I know that they bring things over, and I know they'll do that again. But this particular year, because it's a brand new application, I'm not a hundred percent confident that that's going to work. But hopefully, it will. Okay. Um, well, I guess the answer is be prepared to enter your information. Be prepared. Yeah, but it it'll probably just be this one year problem on that. So okay. If I'm paying for my own college, can I make them ignore my parents' income? Um. You can't ignore your parents income if you were so there's basically certain questions on the fafsa that um automatically make you considered an independent student um and the, one of those would be like are you a graduate student are you a veteran um were you born before and i'm sorry i don't know what the date is but it basically are you 24 years old or more um and and then there and then there are also some questions about homelessness and foster care um so if those if you answer yes to one of those questions, then you would automatically be considered independent for the FAFSA where there would not be parental data required. Um, but if you can't answer yes to any of those questions, then you have to put parental data down. And if you, um, and so technically, like if you're in a special circumstance where you're, you know, you should be considered independent because you have an adversarial relationship or a an unsafe environment relationship with a parent or something like that. You could be considered as a special circumstance to be considered independent. But otherwise, if you just if you want to do this on your own, there it doesn't really work that way easily to you really do have to put parental data down. If you want to talk with a financial aid administrator about your certain circumstance, that would be best. Because if you're in that gray area, they can at least walk you through that a little bit. Okay, thank you. Yeah, those situations could be unique, but generally, unless yeah. there is a story or something yeah. that catches mentioned, then yeah. even if your parents are just like, I'm not paying, you know, you're paying yeah, that on and they, yeah. they have a, a boatload of money, that's, that's yeah. something you'll have to figure out. How can you, I don't know if there's a way to even become independent. I would imagine, I don't know if you can, if you can actually like um, legally become an independent. Uh, well, I mean, there's like, a, you could be a ward of the court and that type of thing. That's another one of the things on there that if you're a ward of the court in your state, then you're also considered, you can also be considered. And right. that's another one of the items. Okay. Um, but no, in that case where the parents are just sort of refusing to do the FAFSA, um, you have, so anyone who files the FAFSA has to provide consent. It's called consent on there this year, where they are consenting for anything coming over from the IRS to be dumped into the FAFSA, basically. And if there is no consent by one of the people who are on the FAFSA, then a, there will not be a student aid index that's calculated, and therefore you will not qualify for aid. Um, the worst case scenario is that you, at most, could qualify for an additional unsubsidized loan if your parents are unwilling to fill out the FAFSA. But okay. that is all you would, 
that's all you would qualify for would be extra unsub money. Okay. Someone wants to know, is there anything parents can do to increase aid the student receives Two kids in college? Um, if you increase, well, okay. So some, you know, those folks who are using the FAFSA data with only one and they're not, the calculation does isn't using two in college this year. Um, you definitely want to maybe work with the financial aid office to see if they could count maybe some of the costs of that person's, the other siblings' college costs in the calculation. So that's one thing. That's an absolute. And then um, because it's not part of the calculation, you know, you could at least ask them to take that into account. Um, the second thing is um, apply for outside scholarships so that you can try to reduce the overall cost of your education through getting some free money. And that would be looking locally to like your, you know, local businesses or churches or your employer or places where, you, you know, Walmart, places that want to give money to local kids to um, towards their education. Um, you could also apply like more on a regional or a national level for outside scholarships um, to, you know, there's like some search scholarship searches such as through um, Scholly, S-C-H-O-L-L-Y, um, uh, CapEx, I want to say maybe might have one. Um, also FastWeb, the College Board. So you can start looking for some outside scholarships through that. And then a big one to save money so, uh, down the line is to become an RA where you're a resident advisor in a dorm and you're, the student is actually sort of almost like the manager of all the other residents on their floor maybe or a part of the floor um, where they're kind of like like the, the den mother or the den father. So you're, you're getting room and board money. Basically. You're getting money for food and the housing covered by being an RA. So it very, very much can add up substantially. Um, from a finance perspective in years, you know, two, three or four of college. So I love, I love those jobs. They're, uh, they're fantastic and yes, provide great leadership opportunities. And there's just so many perks to that. So, great resume builder. Yeah. And being an RA, I'm, I'm a big fan. So, okay. I'm just going to finish this with two more questions. You know, we're going to wrap up out of families making slightly over a hundred thousand dollars get grants. So there is no, particular income cutoff. So if you make over $100,000, it doesn't mean that you won't qualify for aid. And here's why. Because if you're applying to like, especially a higher cost institution, their their cost is way up here. So, you know, it's they're starting from a higher number to figure out how much aid you're eligible for. So there's more room for, there for you to have some need-based aid. So um, definitely apply for aid if your income's over 100000 It doesn't there is no cutoff. I mean, if you're making a million dollars, that's a different thing because I right. pretty much there aren't any schools where you would qualify for aid if you make a million dollars. Um, pretty much, I don't think. Uh, you know, so um, if you, um, so yeah, so I would say regardless of your income, you could still apply. It's a free application. So, um, and then the CSS profile does offer a free, uh, basically a fee waiver for their fee-based application if you make $100,000 or less. So um, even though it does have a fee for that form, if you make $100,000 or less, you wouldn't have to pay the fee. Yeah. What if, um, what about a family making $200,000? $200,000, I, we've given, I in my financial aid background, we, we gave, gave financial aid to people with $200,000 of income. 
Um, I think it depends on how many people you have in college for those types of schools, for sure, where you're, you know, um, especially if it's a CSS profile school where we know that, you know, most or many of them this year are going to be counting the number in college, even though the FAFSA doesn't. Um, and so you might still qualify for some some money there for those for those types of institutions. If it is a school that's uh, FAFSA only and it and you're making two hundred thousand, um, you know, depending on how much as how many assets you have as well, that can also come into play on the bottom line. So when in doubt, it'll at least give you fifty five hundred dollars towards a loan in the first year of college. So right. And um, what what do parents do if they don't have a social security number? So like an undocumented parent, maybe. Yeah. So undocumented students cannot fill out the FAFSA. What if the student has a social security number, but the parents do not? I think you can leave it blank. Right, because the student could be documented and have undocumented parents and those undocumented parents. I've seen that situation where they get really nervous about sharing information because now they're disclosing this information in a federal document. Correct. I know that does it does um, make people nervous. And um, but technically, this the they can leave it blank for the social security number. I think it would still go in, but it would. You'd want to get the give the college a heads up because they typically will use the social security number in many cases to match up against your admissions application. So just so that they know like who this is coming in from, I think that might be something you want to give them a heads up on. Um, also, there are some states that have um, grant programs that they give to undocumented students and DACA students. So um, some states are more generous than others on that. Some don't have any programs. Some have a good program. So that is another reason why you still want to be able to fill out the, um, you know, fill out what you need to. Look at what the school needs to fill out and make sure you're filing whatever's being asked of you for those institutions. And for that student, I would I would contact the school and I would explain the situation. Yeah. And then yeah, I would do. It'll be more helpful to talk talk with someone about yeah. that because it's a special circumstance essentially that you right. want to make sure you do it right, and you want to be able to get the most aid available. So, and it's also tricky, you know, if your parents uh, don't speak English very well, and you want someone to help to explain and to speak in in whatever language they speak in. Um, you know, finding those people, it, it's it's tricky, but if you start advocating for yourself early on in that process and lean on the first generation programs, lean on yes. whatever center is connected to your your culture or ethnicity. Well, Kat, I am so grateful that you can be here with us. And what we're going to do is we're going to keep talking. If people have more questions, fill out your questions. We can complete these in the comment area wherever you're watching this. If you're listening to the podcast, feel free to send in those questions. I hope to have a chance to have Kat come back. We can talk more, maybe get more panelists to talk about the FAFSA questions and everything that's on your mind. So I'm just so grateful you can be here, Kat. I'm just so grateful all you can be here. I hope this was helpful. I hope it simplified some of this. Lean on the resources that are available, and I will do everything I can to support you through this process. So thanks for being here, and I'm just so grateful to be in your corner. Thanks, everyone.